from the front lines of the green rush. This is Green Entrepreneur, where business owners talk about how they found success in cannabis and how you can too. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Green Entrepreneur podcast. My name is Jonathan Small. I'm the editor-in-chief of Green Entrepreneur. Really excited about our show today. It's going to be super educational and interesting. We've got entrepreneur Josh Kesselman, who is the CEO and creator of Raw, one of the most popular rolling paper brands in the world, which he founded way back in the early 90s. And Josh's inventions range from his iconic best-in-class natural rolling papers to pre-rolled filter tips among his original products that have really revolutionized the whole ritual of rolling. And the company has really a cult-like following. Hip-hop star Wiz Khalifa even dedicated a song to the brand, which is called Aptly Raw. Josh's products are sold now in every U.S. state across thousands of convenience stores, smoke shops, and dispensaries. I've certainly seen them. Josh is also a philanthropist. Through his Raw Foundation, he has donated millions of dollars to organizations across the world, and he is an active participant in their work. These projects include digging wells in sub-Saharan Africa, building orphanages in Southeast Asia, and fostering tree and water preservation initiatives across North America. That's great work, Josh. Welcome so much to the show. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about the origin story of Raw. You started this way back in the 90s. How did you come up with the idea to create your company? and how did you grow it to be the size it is now? Well, growing it is just like a tree. Once you plant it and get its roots set, it'll grow naturally as long as you feed it water and keep it, keep it nice and happy and healthy. What, um, for me, it all began with a magic trick my dad did when I was a little kid in New York City, where he would light his rolling paper on fire and throw it up in the air and it would just vanish. And we'd all sit around the table and he would do this trick for us during the holidays. And, the, and we all would just go, wow. So I was maybe five years old back then. But that was the first and only magic trick my dad ever knew. So to me, rolling papers were magic and they had a special symbolism within my heart. I loved them. I was like, oh my God. So I was drawn to them and I began collecting rolling papers. And at one point, I believe I had the largest collection of rolling papers in America. And I was the only collector to really put my collection online in like when the internet's first getting going, first getting going. So I put my whole collection online, which connected me with a community of maybe five other collectors in the world. There aren't that many of us. And um, we began trading with each other. And that's important because this led into the formation of my business. So again, I'm in love with rolling papers, really deeply in love with them. And in about 1993, I opened up my first little store while I'm still in college. It's just a smoke shop, head shop thing, little tiny store where I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew I wanted to get the store open, you know? And as part of that store, and by the way, this store, I learned so much and I'm so lucky to have a background of retail like that because I understand the retailers and I connect with them at a level that you couldn't if you weren't there. Like that's, that's where I, you'd say you cut your teeth. Well, that's where I cut my teeth was back there in the retail environment, dealing with every consumer that walked in and trying my best to make them happy. I try to figure out what their needs were and satisfy those needs. Because again, I knew I didn't know, I didn't know what I was doing, but I also knew that I didn't know what I was doing, which is really important. If you accept it and acknowledge that you have no idea what the fuck you're doing, then it gives you a, actually a point of leverage. Right. That is such an important lesson, I think, for all entrepreneurs is to recognize that you don't know everything <laughs> and then to recognize what you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Because then it allows you to, you start asking questions. If you're faking it, if you're like, oh, I, I know everything. And then you're pretending, you know, things you don't, or your ego is pushing you forward where you, you're not allowed to accept 
that you don't know shit, then you're actually weak and people will see right through you. And then next thing you know, you're not necessarily doing that well. But if you're completely honest and being like, you know, dude, I don't really know much about this. Why don't you teach me? <laughs> you know, next thing you know, you become an expert. You're learning from everybody, you know, and you pick up knowledge from everyone around you. And that's what my store experience was like. I knew I didn't know what I was doing. I knew I didn't know that much. But every person that came in that store, I took the time to really talk to them and in a way befriend them and learn what their needs were and then satisfy those needs. If they're looking for a particular pipe or a paper or some device, whatever it was, I always they asked me if I was going to, I was going to carry that. I would always say, yes, I'll have it within two weeks. And it was true because as soon as they left, I would hit the phones and call everyone I could find within the industry until I found what they were looking for and filled my store essentially with what the people that were coming in told me they wanted. So the store perfectly matched the community. And of course, it was naturally a huge success. What were you surprised to find out that people wanted that you might not have known initially? Well, I, I was not a one-hitter person back then at all. I didn't understand that point because I was always smoking too big for that. So I learned all about, like, I remember the first thing I had to learn all about one-hitters. And I was like, okay, why do you, why do you smoke these? How do you smoke these? Oh, show me this, show me that. They showed me their own devices and they came in and I would bring in things for them. And then when it would come in for them, and they would leave with it, I would basically, again, ask them to show it to me or have them teach me some other thing about it. And I just learned about them from the people that were using them. That was a big thing that I, I truly learned a lot about was little devices that I didn't personally use. So I didn't connect with them. I didn't understand them. But other people, it meant a lot to. I also learned that people could not roll joints. <laughs> so I, had to, I was like, okay, I got to make something for you guys too. Because that was a big, I le- really, it was disconnecting with people and trying to teach them. And then you'd learn that some people just couldn't get it. So I was like, okay, cool. We'll make something for you. I'll make, I can pre-roll things for you. I'll make empty things you can fill. It was all about satisfying their needs and making, making sure that they were well taken care of. And then that in a way you're elevating them. Right. Well, along the way you have become somewhat of an expert in the history of rolling paper. And I thought that was fascinating when I learned that because I don't know anything about, I didn't even know there was a history of rolling paper and I didn't even know I mean, of course there has to be, everything has a history, but like that it goes back as far as it does and you've become somewhat of a scholar in this. And first of all, talk to me about why it's important that we even understand the history of rolling paper and why it was important to you to understand it. Well, the reason why it's important is for me, it's important because I want, my goal is to make the best rolling paper that has ever existed in the history of mankind up until now unless somebody beat me after that. And it's a serious goal. And, I, and it's something we really, like I know we say it like, it's serious. This is really what it's about for us. There's a long line of people that came before me that had the same type of mentality. And each one of them would bring it to, a, to another level and then another level, next person, you had to level the next person. And that was the way that rolling papers always were. Why it's important for the history is twofold. First of all, if you want to make the best that's ever existed, you have to, under, you have to truly learn the history of it understand the craft. Where did it come from? What mistakes have other people made? What lessons did they learn that you could learn from them in order to make it even higher? Or else you're just going to have to relearn every mistake that everyone in the history of rolling papers has ever made, which is foolish. You know, I'd rather learn from other people's mistakes and just, and do even better. So that's one part of it. It was also in order to change things, you also have to understand where they come from. So for me, it was like this. 1993, as I was telling you before, every single person that came into the store wanted something that I didn't have because the store was very, very clearly new. And they would be telling me, get me this, get me that. Essentially, I was like, of course, of course, of course. One of the things they wanted was a particular brand of natural cigarettes. I won't say their name. And back then, this particular brand of natural cigarettes from America was very difficult to get in 93, maybe 94, but 93. And 
what I had to do was you had to actually call the company itself and order them from them and have them sent to the store. So I did all of this for this for this customer who, was, who had told me this whole story of how this cigarette is the best. Oh my God, it's so natural. You'll love it. Oh my God, it's so great. You got to carry it. All right, cool. So in my mind, now keep in mind, I know rolling paper and I already have a huge collection. So he's told me a thousand times this word natural. And I'm assuming that the paper is going to be like a natural paper. It's going to be brown, not bleached out. It's going to be not whitened. It's going to be this beautiful translucent brown paper in my head. I'm imagining the cigarettes come in for him. I sell him a pack. He opens it up and offers me one. I say, thank you. And he pulls it out. And it's just another bright white bleached out fucking chalk filled freaking roll, like rolling paper on the thing. I'm like, what the fuck? Like what, what? So that caused me to do like a mental double take. I started thinking through my collection and everything I'd ever seen, had I ever seen the type of rolling paper that I was envisioning? And I realized I hadn't. So I was like, wow, rolling papers have pretty much always been white, except for a few dyed ones here or there, or some stuff that was made once that was weird uh, out of wheat during a war, this company. But yeah, it was, um, I go through my, in my whole history and I thumb through my collection. There's nothing like what I'm imagining. So I was like, okay, why has nobody done this? Well, now you got to go back to the history. Well, no one's ever done this because of where rolling papers come from. But now I'll tell you the story of where rolling papers come from. Where does rolling paper come from? (laughs) And you have to answer this question in order to understand why it was always done a certain way and why it's still mostly done a certain way. We humans, really, we fight off change, man. All right, so Columbus comes back from the new world with these loosely rolled awful cigars. They were rolled mostly in, in palm leaf tied with a string. They looked like, I don't know, they were blimpy in the center, almost banana shaped. I've seen uh, drawings of them and they were just ugly. Okay, and now this trade in tobacco begins throughout the 1500s and all tobacco has to land in Seville. The king orders it. It's the mercantile capital of Spain at the time and it's inland, it's up a river. So it's a perfect place for a great port. So all these cigars start landing there. Well, the aristocrats, smoke these cigars about halfway and a cigar will do something called turning that essentially means it turns bad it gets too resonated full of uh, nicotine and juice and tar that you really can't smoke it anymore the flavor is disgusting it's it's not palatable so the aristocrats would throw them on the ground and walk off well these cigars have been sailed over on wooden sailing ships you know at great risk at extreme expense so the peasants would come and scoop it up my ancestors would come and scoop it up open it up and re-roll it in used newspaper, little pieces of it in used newspaper. And then, even then, the puffs were so precious that they held the smoke in. This is where all cigarette smoking comes from. This is the switches from cigars to cigarettes right there in Seville and in Valencia. So this process of rolling in used newspaper makes its way throughout Spain. And so before that, they were smoking it in pipes? Is that how people were consuming tobacco? No, they were smoking in cigars. In we big go, cigars. We go from cigars to cigarettes. Yeah. So these now they're making much thinner... So the difference is just much thinner, not rolled in. What were cigars rolled in back in the day? Well, that's what I'm saying. They were they, cigars nowadays. They're rolled in tobacco. Back then, they were rolled in a combination of tobacco and palm. Got it. The palm, right? Okay. So okay, I cut you off. So keep on going here. <laughs> so okay. So now we started cigarettes. Okay. Started so now- cigarettes. But this thing of rolling and used newspaper makes its way up to Alcoy. Now again, I would keep you here for hours explaining to you how and why. But essentially, Alcoy was the paper making capital of all of Europe at the time. And a short thing is because when the Moors came to Spain, they set up the world's first, um, Europeans first, paper-making mills up in the Alcoy area because that was a perfect place to make paper. And when the Moors were kicked out, obviously the paper trade had already begun and was already still there in Alcoy. So this thing of making 
paper is up in Elkhoy. This process of rolling and used newspaper makes its way up there. And the Alcoyanos take one look at this and they say, no way, because <laughs> they know what's in that used newspaper, man. They know those, those, those extremely toxic inks were used. And they were like, they don't want to smoke that. So they immediately turn and make a bright white bleached paper, bright white to show you that it's pure. And they literally market it as hygienical so that you knew it was not used newspaper. It was fresh. It was perfect paper for smoking, cleaner. And, you be, and the process of rolling in this white paper begins. And it was important to everyone that their paper was nice and white so that they knew that it was pure. That's where all white comes from, from the first cigarettes. And that's why we still smoke white to this day. It's all because we're trying to show to somebody in the 1500s that we're not smoking out of used newspaper. Amazing. Yeah. We don't change, man. We really don't. <laughs> we don't change. And nobody had really thought, you know, why, why do these have to be white? Well, you know, up until like the 21st century, 20th century, do these always have to be white? <laughs> it's the same thing as like the tomatoes, right? Where tomatoes have to be beautiful. Nowadays, a beautiful tomato, we're all scared of it because it's like, wait a minute. What is that? Is that a GM tomato? You want some ugly ass thing with spots and bruises that you picked up at the farmer's market because you know it's going to taste a zillion times better. And it's the same thing with rolling paper. If it's beautiful and white and homogenized, you know it's going to be bland as fuck. <laughs> you know, it, and it's not going to perform the way that I want it to perform. Whereas if you have some natural sheet where every single sheet is slightly variated and every single piece is actually a little bit different, you're going to have a different experience and it's much more connected to the way that we historically smoke. When I say historically, I mean going back to our early tribal tribal, tribal experience. So size matters, apparently. Talk to a little bit about this thing about the different sizes, the standard size, king size, single side. How, what's the origin of all that? That all becomes, okay, so the first size was what we now refer to as one and a quarter, which is also referred to as Spanish size. So this all comes from those giant sheets I was telling you about. And what, in order for, like, okay, let's say you bought a sheet. Right, great. Now you've got this massive sheet and it's not, it's massive, the size of a table. What are you going to do with it? Well, you would fold, 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 fold it into a rectangle and tie it with a string. Now this is important because the string on packs of raw is to, is homage to those original packs, the first packs ever made just like that. But once you compressed it down into your rectangle, you would then use the fold lines of your rectangle to tear off a sheet and roll up a smoke. So this process of doing this also became where we would share with each other. You would share off little pieces. So essentially, the first, based on folding, the first cigarette size we ever really, paper we ever really used as humans was what is nowadays referred to as one and a quarter. And that became very popular, of course. Once we started making booklets, thanks to Father Benigno, I forgot, oh gosh, I forgot what his name was. He's a Dominican priest up in the Alcoy region who invented the first rolling paper booklets in the 1600s. And I could be wrong. I think it was, uh, I thought it was 1620, but I'm not sure. Now, again, booklets are coming out. Booklet, now we're cutting the paper for you to make it easier for you. And now it's, again, one and a quarter size, roughly. Well, uh, Spain is doing great with tobacco, but um, London, England, begins taxing it. And as the taxes get onto this, the cost of tobacco skyrockets. And people in England began uh, rolling smaller and smaller they made a size that we now refer to as single wide. So now you have two sizes. You have single wide and one and a quarter that are now within the world. And interestingly enough, by the way, up until recent times, single wide was the most popular size, not just in the UK, but in all of the former colonies. Whereas everywhere else, the natural size is one and a quarter. So like America, one and a quarter kicks single wide ass. But in Canada, one, single wide was kissing, kicking one and a quarter's ass just because of British tie, British connection. And then we move on 
to bigger sizes. Well, the bigger sizes got kind of silly. There's ones that, that happened in like the 70s and 80s. That's where we got into one and a half and double wide. I mean, nobody smokes, very few people, I should say, smoke double wide anymore. This was a thing of just because single wide was an easy paper to get and people were rolling bigger and fatter ones and they needed papers that were twice as big. And therefore, you ended up with a double wide or one that was one and a half times about as big. You ended up with one and a half. And that's cool. Those are sizes that are more historical. We don't sell or make that many of those kind of sizes anymore. But then you get into king size. King size is another funny one. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I'll do my best to tell it to you short. What happened was there were 100 millimeter smokes, cigarettes, just regular cigarettes. And Rizla wanted to make 100 millimeter rolling paper, and they do. All right, cool. And they make this 100 millimeter paper. Well, a certain factory in Spain, not related to me, wanted to make a paper to compete with Rizla. And they're like, you know, we'll outdo Rizla. And they make a 110 millimeter rolling paper. And they call it king size, which is completely wrong. King size is actually 84 millimeters. By what standards, king size? Who made that? Because one of the former kings of England began smoking that size and they named it king size. It's a 70 millimeter rolling paper, which is a single wide, plus a 14 millimeter filter element essentially onto the end with a cork tip. So you ended up with 84 millimeters and that was the king's size. It's so interesting because you never, I never thought of king size as actually going back to the time when there was kings. You know, you just think of king size as being like the king of beers, you know, big it just represents big, but it's actually about kings in this case. That's really fascinating. That was the king size. So king size cigarettes are 84 millimeters long. And then king size rolling papers, because of this company in Spain that didn't know what they didn't understand. And they just named it king size. And now we're stuck to this day with king size rolling papers being 110 millimeters long, really nice and long. And a king size cigarette being 84. Makes no sense. But we're stuck with it. We're just stuck with it, man. This wasn't me. Right. <laughs> you, know? you just have to do this. It doesn't. Yeah, now we got it. We got to make a 110. You have to call it king size, even though it's not really king size. Like, I mean, okay, but cool. what about if you just decide to not do that? What happens? Like, is it just, does the world turn upside down? I mean, what, why does it have to? It doesn't. But like, I consider myself late to the game. Starting in the 90s is very late compared, compared to the way some of these guys have been around for much, much longer. And they, if I didn't call mine king, what would I have called it? You know what I mean? That was the standard. That became the standard is 110 is king size. You know, oh, I'm going to make a new standard. Okay. That's kind of a Kanye West thing to do. Not really me. <laughs> <laughs> You're just, yeah, you don't want to completely reinvent the game, but you have reinvented some things, which is the secret to some of your success, right? Is that you have tried to look at something that's everybody saw in one way in a bit of a different way. Talk to me a little bit about that and, and how you've done that. All right. Well, it goes back to my grandpa. And this is really important for anyone who's really in, um, for me, that anyone who's actually in business needs to hear Joe Kesselman's story. And it's a story that if you, if you had a grandpa who's of, of the right age, he probably told you a similar story. Maybe he didn't, but if he didn't, here you go. It was Joe Kesselman's mousetrap theory. So me growing up in New York, my grandpa, Joe, would always tell me that this, this thing we've all heard, right? Build a better mousetrap and the world will be the path to your door. But he would go much further with it. He would be telling me, explaining to me it was his method of capitalism, essentially. Free market. All of this was based on the mousetrap theory, which was, hey, Josh, if you and I were competing, it's supposed to be like this, where I'm in the mousetrap business, I'm making mousetraps, I make a really good mousetrap, catches a mouse 10 out of 10 times, works perfectly, resets, lasts forever. It's a great mousetrap. And I get rewarded with these little made-up slips of funny stuff called money. Cool. That's part one. Now you're in, in competition with me. So what are you going to do? Well, what you're supposed to do you're supposed to make an even better mousetrap than me. Maybe yours catches two mice at once, right? It's this amazing fucking mousetrap built even better. What a great mousetrap. And then you get rewarded with the made these little slips of stuff called funny things called money. 
And I'm like, then me as a business, I'm like, oh shit, I'm losing. I better make something even better. And I go up and I make an even better mousetrap, man. And I make catches three at once. It's recalls. It's so easy to set. It's got safety features. It's even fucking better. And I get rewarded. And we do this back and forth to each other. It's like climbing a ladder where we're stepping on each other. And we go up and up and up and up and up until we are eventually creating flying mousetrap machines that go around like a Roomba, catch a mouse, fly it off to a mouse sanctuary and drop it off and come back. And this is how, of course, it's starting off with mousetraps, but it's the same thing with rolling paper. It's the same thing with anything that people do for a living. Because if we do that, if we, if we keep going up and up and up, that's how we end up flying through space at warp factor nine. However, there is a corruption of this that occurred, which is, okay, you and I are competing. I make an amazing mousetrap. You could then turn around and be like, you know what? I'm going to copy his mousetrap, even use a similar name or make it look similar on the shelf to his. But I'm going to make it less, I'm going to use crappier materials and make it in some place where it'll make them as good. And I'm just going to undercut him. And that's my big business plan. And then you do that to me. And if it works, if the consumers are tricked into buying your product, then I'm left sitting here like, what do I do? I'm supposed to go down and, and compete with you. And I'll go to a fourth world country and make it even cheaper. And we end up with a mountain full of garbage, a mountain full of mousetraps that don't really work. And the mice are, are being caught less, not more. And the whole planet gets polluted and we never get to fly through space at warp factor nine. This is what I've seen too much of. And this is too often what occurs within our society. But I refuse to go that direction. I hold on to what my grandpa taught me and I'm always trying to go up. And I try to encourage my competitors to do the same thing with me. They don't for the most part. Some do. But for the most part, they do that thing, the second part that I don't like, where it's, I'll make one that looks like his, but cheaper. I dislike that so much. So instead, I try to compete with myself. It's a project that's never quite done. When we make the rolling paper, we make what, or make one of my crazy inventions, whatever it is, I make a lot of crazy inventions. I don't know if you know, I love doing that. It's so much fun. What's your craziest invention? Well, like the one I'm about to drop um, as soon as it comes in, which should be any day now, is um, the hands-free smoker. Okay, now this is, you're playing video games, or maybe you're typing on your computer. It literally holds it up by your mouth, has a little built-in ashtray underneath it to catch your ash so you can keep smoking while you're typing, while you're playing games, while you're doing fucking anything. <laughs> that is hilarious. That's it goes great. around your neck. It's nice and soft and comfortable. It's got an adjustable um, angle and all these different things so I can get it where it really works. You can get it lined up perfectly so that, and it's funny as fuck. You can multitask. People, yeah. Yeah, you can multitask. Now, the cool thing about this, A, it's going to make you laugh, which is such a great thing to do in the world. It's going to make people smile and giggle and be like, oh my God, that is so fucking funny. We based it on, you remember the beer hats? Yeah, the beer goggle. Yeah, yeah. The beer goggle hat. Yeah. It's kind of like the thought was we wanted to make one of those for smoking. And then we ended up creating this, this crazy contraption. And you know, this contraption is one amongst probably thousands of things that, that I've made over the years. We so enjoy innovating and creating and uplifting through this process that maybe we go further with it than we even should. If you ask my advisors, they're mad at us that we are always dropping a new product. Oh, you don't get the old product a chance to run because they want us to do it more like, you know, like ubiquitous iPhone where every year you give them a new one with slight update and you milk it for an entire year, all the profits milked out of it. And then you update it just enough to make people happy to buy it again. Yeah, that's just not the way I am. Instead, it's just like, as soon as it's done, it's how can I make it better? Okay, what did I learn? Now this is the marketplace. I'm getting feedback. What did they say? What did they say? Ooh, that guy thought the tip should be shorter. Oh, that guy thought that. Oh, okay, cool. I can adjust that. No problem. I can fix that. Oh, okay. You're having that problem. Okay, cool. I can, I can fix that too. Hmm. You know what I mean? And just yeah, that's so cool. Perfectionist mindset. Perfection is a mindset, not a goal I've learned, but this is the way we do things. So this is all with, within everything that we do at my company. This is where we go. And to anyone who's listening to this, I beg you to do the same thing with what you do. 
Because if you're if you're constantly innovating, if you're constantly creating, if you don't have a good competitor or the competitors are all going down and you continue to go up, eventually you will win. Sure, someone will do great scraping the bottom and living in the garbage pile, but you will be the one that everyone looks up to. You will be the one that is doing it in true business fashion, the way that business was supposed to be. Remember, business is a made up thing. None of this is real. Why did, so again, just like we're rolling, why are rolling papers white? Why are we doing business like? Why do we have this system? Why did we invent this thing called money? Why did we do any of this? What was it actually about? Well, it was about rewarding people for invention, inspiring them to create, not just, oh, cool, you made a wheel. Here, let me reward you with as much as you can eat because that's really cool. You helped the whole tribe by making this cool wheel thing. Oh, look at you. You made the wheel even better. Now we can roll things around. Dude, you just helped all of us out so much. You, re- you deserve as much food as you can eat too. This is what it all goes back to. So if you go back to that and think like, how am I, how am I helping society? How am I uplifting the freaking world? Well, if you uplift the world, if you're creating, if you're truly innovating, if you're making people happier, you're going to get rewarded with this silly stuff called money, man. It's just the way it naturally is. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Right. You don't have to steal it. You don't have to Amen. take it. You don't got to fake it. <laughs> you know? Amen. Well, those are great words of wisdom from somebody who really not only talks the talk, but walks the walk. Josh, this has been fascinating. You're a really fascinating guy. I'm so happy that we got to talk today. Yeah. So since I, before I'm going to let you go, whenever I have the chance, I always try to push people as well about something else. So little Josh is growing up and he happened to watch a concert called Live Aid. I don't know if you've ever, you get to see I that? remember Live Aid, of course. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a child of the 80s. <laughs> okay. So that changed my life. I watched all the rockers. I watched Bob Geldorf and I was really looking at him, trying to understand what is this man's passion? What is motivating him? And just, there were interviews and he was just getting, he was very emotional. He was getting blown away. And it just inspired me to be more like him, which is this old rocker's mindset of you make it and then you give the fuck back. It's part of real rock and roll, man. You know? didn't really make its way into hip-hop. Hip-hop culture is more about giving back to where you came from, whereas the rock and roll thing was really more about helping the world. And I've been trying really hard to get people to go towards that. So for us, we give back, yeah, we give back a lot. We give back more than anyone I actually know. And I still believe that I don't give back shit because I think I should, like when you're in Ethiopia with the sisters of Mother Teresa and actually spending time with them and seeing people give their life, if you realize that, dude, I'm, I'm doing nothing. I'm not giving shit. I'm giving back some money. What the fuck is this? You guys are actually really giving. And I don't even give back all my money. I still buy stupid fancy shit all the time. And you learn that two things. Well, something beautiful, like two things is this. First, it's so important that we do give back. You recognize the whole world is your tribe. It's going to make you feel good. Your customers, some of them will care about it. Don't get discouraged that most of them don't. Because most of my customers don't care that we give back all this money and do all this work. They really mostly don't. But some do. And you're not just doing it for them. You're doing it for you and for the world. I've had this goal of inspiring change to show people that there is another way, that it isn't that the older ways were better, but if you take the best of the older ways, it is better, you know? I want people to give back for real, whatever that means to them. For me, I try to give back with an open heart where I'm trying not to give back to people that I feel a connection to, where it's like, I don't want to give back to my people, whatever the fuck that means. I don't even know what my people are. I want to get back to people who need the help the most. So in Ethiopia, you can realistically save a life and or greatly, greatly improve it for maybe 30 bucks, right? And when you're over there in Ethiopia and seeing the level of suffering and actually experiencing it firsthand, you just want to open your wallet and give everything you have. 
and you will. <laughs> I always say that if I believe if I could take like the most racist, you know, supremacist in the whole world and take him with me to Ethiopia and he would fall in love and would all be gone because he would see. One would hope so. Yeah, he would. Because you're looking at these at people and everyone there and you're seeing their suffering and you recognize that they are you and you are them. They are human just like you. Next thing you know, you find yourself crying and just like, okay, let's do this. Okay, let's do this. It happens to me every time I'm there. I end up with projects that I like quarter million dollar project. Me? Fuck, really? Me? Why does it gotta be me? You know, I'm the freaking rolling paper guy. It's supposed to be somebody else, man. You know, where's Unicor? Where's some of these frick? Where's the UN Health Organization? Where are these guys? Why does it gotta be me? And you're not just giving money, right? You're actually doing things like over there. So you actually do go over there. You're not just writing. I do go over there. You go you go over there and you supervise. You you what do you do? Okay, I've got ground partners. So like my favorite one that holds closest, or I got more than one favorite, really. I have two favorites in particular, but I've got one over there um, called Water is Life Ethiopia, right? This is David Harding, an incredible organization. And this is where we go and meet with the sisters of Mother Teresa, which was a whole nother story. It should take another hour for me to explain how I ended up connecting with them out of all people. I'm not religious at all. Doing all of the water wells for all of their hospitals over there. I think we've done them all by now. I'm, I believe we have. Seven hospitals, I think, at this point. So they are my favorite to work with. So you're not just, hey, David, here's some money for you. No, 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 no. You got to go over there. You've got to see the projects, feel it, understand what you're actually looking for, seeing where you can truly have the greatest impact. Because in the end, what you're trying to do is do it with math the same way that we do business, where it's like, okay, I want to spend half a million dollars in Ethiopia this year. How can I have the greatest impact? Impact being derived by how many lives can I save? And save mean you're pretty much saved their life. Sure, either they were going to die or they were going to suffer greatly for the rest of their time. So what can we do? What are the projects where I can have the greatest impact? Put aside anything, any form of, I only want to help these kind of people or I don't like that. No, just where can we do this? Who needs our help? Where can we do it? And that's how we go about this. You try to push it onto math and it's important to push it onto math because otherwise, if you as a human are deciding who lives and who dies, then you are fucked, man. You end up like Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now where you're sitting in the hotel room with the, you know, with the, the helicopter blade of the fan goes over your head and you're having a freaking breakdown. I've been in close to those kind of places. I've been in that kind of state before where it was like, you're just losing it. You have to go back to math because that way math is not, math is at fault. This is just the way it is. We're helping these people because the cost per life there, which is this thing we do called the CPL, is $33 per person. And we can save all these people at $33 per person. Whereas the CPL over there is 47. Okay, cool. Then we'll do these ones over here. You can't save everybody, so, but you want to save the greatest number possible. So you go by the math to the, to the extent that you can, and you try to save as many people as you can. And then you go there to both find new projects and to celebrate the ones that you did. You want to see them with your own eyes. You want to experience them. You want to sit there and cry with the sisters. It's beautiful shit. It's going to inspire you to go back and do it again. So this isn't supposed to be about that, but I just, if anyone happens to be listening to me, I want them to give back, man, because there aren't enough of us doing it. There's like 10 of us and we need an 11th man. <laughs> no, I think that's, that's wonderful news. And I think some people, I think a lot of entrepreneurs want to do the right thing and they want to be socially active and, and helpful, but they don't always know how to, or doesn't make maybe business sense for them. So I think it's great that you both showed a path to how to do it. And also the fact that actually not to be cynical or, but it actually even makes good business sense. You know, I mean, it's obviously humanitarian trumps everything, but even if you're completely unempathetic and are just doing it to make money, it even makes good sense financially for you to, to help others right in your business. I hope so. And the way that I pitch it to my people around me 
is even for the people that are not into what I do, like I'm within my own organization, there, I think everybody's into it, but let anyone who wouldn't be, they, um, it's, hey, two things. One is I can't keep doing what I'm doing. Like as a person, I can't keep inventing and creating and, and working as, mu as much as I do unless I'm doing this. So if we don't do this, you're going to lose me, first of all. So you don't want to do that. So there's that cost. And secondly, within everyone else within the organization, my people, my family loves that we give back like we do. It makes them feel good about working at a place that actually truly gives a shit. That actually they're like, no, 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 these guys give back for real. No, they're not doing fundraisers, man. They're not doing big fancy dinners. It's actually mostly just their money. They're just giving it away because they want to help. They're not doing it for because of, oh my God, we're going to do a you know, $100 plate dinner. Nope, there's no such... Oh, wow. Someone tried to call me. Go away. <laughs> Sorry. Decline. <laughs> um, so it's like that. It inspires your staff. And what value is there in inspiring your staff? So much. Because if your staff loves what they do, then they will work harder for you. And they will work harder towards the goals. And you have a greater chance of success. And they never leave. I have probably the lowest turnover rate out of anyone within my segment. I don't, the people don't leave me. They don't go. Unless they, look, once in a while, okay, we lost one person to go become an EMT. That's okay. If you're going to have to lose somebody to something, at least they're helping. <laughs> they're, they're driving an EMT truck. But we, we don't lose warehouse staff. We don't lose anybody, really. Like, they just don't go. Once they come on staff with us, if they make it past the first, let's say, year so they really fit in with us, they don't go. They're just here. And you think that's largely because of your charitable work that you do? And I mean, obviously, you've made a culture. The same way we also care about every single person in there. Like, we're, we're all connected. No one feels that they're above anybody or there's none of that kind of thing that goes on. We all work very hard together. We have a really fun workplace. We get so much shit done. We work so hard. And we love what we do. Everybody there loves what they do, you know? And everyone recognizes that they're all, we're all just part of one link of chains. And not one, if one chain breaks, it doesn't matter which one it was. It's still a broken, now you end up with a, it's all broken. So we do things in that way too. I, there's so much I would love to try to explain to um, your listeners. The most important thing though is to have empathy, right? Have empathy with your staff, have empathy with your customer, connect with them in every which way. There've been so many times when I have bought a product and then I look at it and realize that no one actually ever used this besides me. Like, I, I, like I'll give you an example. And I will even call out their name. Bucky's Sleep Masks. All right. Now, I am a guy who travels a lot. So I need a good sleep mask. Well, so I, I figured I'd, I, I'd get a good sleep mask. You all buy them Bucky's Sleep Mask. Well, they designed it with a clip that's right at the back of your head. So that when you, when you go to put your head on a pillow or in the back of a plane thing, the clip pushes into the back of your head. You're like, well, that's kind of dumb. Who would do that? Why would someone design something like that? Then you go through all of the Bucky sleep masks and find out that every single one of them has a clip at the back of your head. And you're like, dude, that's just dumb. Did anyone actually put this on and try to sleep in it? Did somebody, did somebody? And then, you know, people are buying them anyway, because I've seen them everywhere. And that means everyone who's buying them is throwing them out. And I had to go through an inordinate amount of work and actually ended up custom making something to have a clip on the side. I mean, come on, man. This is like 101, right? That obvious, yeah. That obvious. And because no one at Bucky's was actually using the product, because no, or if they were, they didn't have the power to turn around and say, what the fuck are we making? Because of that, I imagine, it, of course, it opens the door to competitors. I imagine their sales are not what they should be. And it's bad for the environment. And it's bad for the end consumer. So if you are a CEO, CEO of a company within this green space and you are not smoking your own stuff, Dude, you're faking it and everyone's going to know and you're going to go down in flames. Just give it time. You've got to be real about everything you do and care, truly care. If your goal is to make the best, then you, then you truly make the best. If your goal is to make the best within a certain price range, then you make the best within that price range and you hold on to that. 
you make it very clear. It becomes part of your mantra. Part of everything you're doing is, no, man, is that the best? Is that the best? Is that the best? Is that the best? Until you finally, truly get there. Now, another thing that we, that we can do is because we are so true believers in what we do and because we are so real, we are able to talk in a way that no, my competitors mostly can't talk because what are they gonna t- how they can they tell their brand story compared to the way we can tell our brand story? We can explain to you every little detail about why we did this, that, whatever. And too many other people's brand story is going to be something like, yeah, well, I saw that natural rolling papers became popular, so I thought I would make one too. What? No, man. You're supposed to go in there and make one, the best one that's ever been made in the history of mankind, bro. And then I'm supposed to beat you. (laughs) You know, that's the way it's supposed to be. So I'm trying to inspire. I'm trying to uplift because I have this thing that I say, and it's true. We all get higher together. And if you accept that and recognize that it's true, then within our industry, you will do great. (laughs) All right. We're going to end on that because that is a good good way to end this interview. Josh, what a pleasure to talk to you. You have so many great messages, I think, for our listeners. And I really appreciate you taking the time. I didn't realize you were not only a entrepreneur, but also a, a man of great wisdom. Thank you for listening to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. To find out more about Green Entrepreneur, you can go to greenentrepreneur.com or check out our magazine on newsstands everywhere. Check out our Instagram at Green Entrepreneur. We're also on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and all other social media feeds. If you like this podcast and you'd like to hear more from me, Jonathan Small, check out my other podcast, Right About Now, that's W-R-I-T-E, to get some in-depth interviews into the lives and stories of successful writers, how they got there, what they learned, and what you need to succeed. That's writeaboutnowmedia.com. Until next episode, we'll THC you later.